So on March 8, 1971, there was one of the biggest sporting events in history at Madison Square Garden. The fight was billed the fight of the century. And it wasn't too much hype because it really was the fight of the century. Two great undefeated champions in boxing came together to settle once and for all who was going to be the world heavyweight champion. On one hand, there was Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali came into this fight at 31 wins, zero losses, 25 of his wins by way of knockout. Joe Frazier came into this fight, 26 wins, zero losses, 23 of his wins by way of knockout. Madison Square Garden was absolutely packed to the rafters. There were celebrities of every stripe at this event. Frank Sinatra was seated ringside taking pictures for Time Magazine. Barbara Streisand was there. Diana Ross was there. Sammy Davis Jr. was there. Woody Allen was there. Burt Lancaster was there. The place was just a power-packed arena. And not only thousands were there in attendance on that day, but millions of people around the world were watching this fight. And what made this fight so hugely important, especially for Muhammad Ali, is that for him, it wasn't just a fight. For him, he had been stripped of his title in 1967. He had been the world champion up to that point, but because of his um, political views about the Vietnam War, he had been stripped of his title and no longer allowed to reign as world heavyweight champion. So for him, this fight at Madison Square Garden was more than a fight. It was an opportunity to come back and try to prove himself to the world and to prove to the world that they had done him wrong. This was his moment for a comeback. This was his moment to prove to the whole world that he was still the greatest of all time. The fight began pretty much as expected. Ali came out with sort of a stick and move style. That was his style. He was very light on his feet. He would come and pepper his opponents with punches and then he would disappear and leave them swinging wildly into the air. And that's what he did for the first three rounds. He fooled Joe Frazier. He he outboxed him. He sped past him. But as the rounds carried on, he started to look a little more tired and a little more sluggish throughout the fight. And then the unthinkable happened. In the last and 15th round, Joe Frazier throws a left hook that connects with Ali's chin, and Ali goes down. No one had ever seen Ali beaten like this before. He was undefeated. Suddenly, Ali is on his back, staring up at the lights of Madison Square Garden in front of millions of people. This dream, this hope, this desire for this comeback was slipping through his grasp. He actually survived the round, but at the end of the fight, all three judges scored it unanimously for Joe Frazier. The the great, the mighty Muhammad Ali had unbelievably been taken down. Today, I want to talk about failure. I want to talk about that experience that all of us have, and if you haven't had it yet, you're prob- you probably got dedicated this morning. You're, 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 because the longer you live, the more, the more you're going to recognize that there will be failures that you will experience in your life. And failures, for whatever reason, seem to stick to us even better than victories. I, I can remember personally um, 
losing a foot race to Gordon McDaniel at Tar Heel Elementary School in Lancaster, Ohio in the third grade. I remember the feeling of losing the foot race. I, I remember, uh, you know, uh, Chrissy Harner and Tavi Burke standing on the sidelines watching me lose the foot race. Um, I've moved on from Chrissy and Tavi, by, by the way. I have a beautiful, beautiful wife. Um, but if I had won the race, I wonder what happened, babe. I don't, I, who knows? <laughs> I remember, <laughs> I remember um, uh, losing, at the end of my, my, my peewee baseball career, fourth grade, I ended that season having caught no fly balls, having grounded no uh, ground balls, fielded no ground balls, and having a zero batting average for the entire season. That's actually kind of hard to pull off, to have a zero batting average. Failure, Right? I remember losing a wrestling match at the Lafayette Tournament, Lafayette High School in 1989 by two points. I remember walking off the mat. I remember the feeling of that failure. We all have experienced failures. Now, those are lightweight failures, right? Some of us have experienced heavyweight failures. Some of us have, uh, uh, maybe we, we were pursuing a job that we thought we would love and we got to that job and we started going after it and it turns out that this is, this is not the job for me and you're struggling now to, to, to be in that job and you're wondering if you can you know, readjust and realign and it feels like failure. Some of you have been in relationships, maybe marriages or maybe just romantic relationships with someone that you were pursuing that relationship and it fell apart and you look back on it and it feels like a failure. Maybe for you it's a, a career path or maybe you had a job that you were on and it got derailed. Somehow you messed up. Maybe it was a financial investment that you made. You were trying to get ahead in life. Maybe you were trying to start a business or you were trying to pursue a degree but life got in the way and, it, and, 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 and you failed. And you look back at it and you go, man, I, I, I blew it. I failed. Today we're launching a new series And we're not only going to be talking about failure, we are going to be talking about failure, but we're really going to be talking about is our response to failure. Because when God is in the equation of our failures, we may be down, but that doesn't mean we have to be out. When we we fail, that doesn't have to be the final word. When we are defeated, that doesn't mean that we are destroyed. All of us have failed. Failure is inevitable. Failure is inevitable, but your response to your failure is what's going to make all the difference. So I have a one-point sermon for you today. I I had a three-point sermon, but then I pitched it to my wife on Wednesday, and she said, why don't you remove points two and three, and that'd be a really good sermon. So I just got a one, one point. You should thank her, because this was going to be a really boring sermon today. But I got a one-point sermon for you, and, and it's this. Personal failure will either define you or it will refine you, depending on your response to it. Your response to your failure will make all of the difference in your life. Not not that you will fail, because you will. All of us will. It's an inevitability. But how you respond to that failure is going to dictate the outcome of your life. I want to read a passage today from... Uh, the book of 2 Samuel, and it's about one of the greatest characters in the Bible, one of the greatest men in the Bible. His name's King David. And when we think of King David, we think of his victories. You know, we think of the, the time that he defeated the bear. 
We think of the time that he defeated the lion. We certainly think of the time that he defeated the giant, the Philistine giant, Goliath, right? All of his military conquests. But today I want to talk about a different part of his life. I want to, I want to bring you into his life in the moments after his greatest failure. I want to bring you into his life, into this story, in the midst of one of the deepest, darkest tragedies in the Bible. And it's a tragedy that David experienced that was precipitated by his own personal failure. His failure led to one of the saddest, most heartbreaking moments in the Bible. And it's a moment when he lost his son. 2 Samuel Chapter uh, 12 says this. It says, David pleaded with God for his child. He had a seven-day-old child. He fasted and spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. David was literally down. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, this child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought while he was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David was so down that they were afraid he would take himself out. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. The child is dead. This is the darkest moment in the life of this man. And the, the thing that makes it worse than the utter heartbreaking tragedy it is, is that this tragedy was precipitated by his failure. You see, earlier that spring, he sent his armies out to war. Now normally, David would go out to war with his armies. But this time, we don't know why. Maybe it was complacency, maybe it was laziness. Maybe it was uh, apathy, but he sent his armies out to war. He sent his general out to war, and he stayed, the scripture says, back in Jerusalem. He stayed back at the palace. One night, he wakes up. He's wandering around the rooftop of the palace, and the scripture says he saw a woman bathing on the roof of her house uh, across the way. Now, David had some choices about what he could do. He could avert his eyes and allow her to have some privacy. He could go back inside of the palace and crawl in bed with any one of 12 or more wives that he already had. Uh, He could have the royal carpenter go and build a privacy fence for this woman so that she could be free to bathe outside. But David allowed his desire to dictate his decision. Now, we have a lot of little babies around here and little kids, and I've got a little two-year-old, and he's not great with impulse control at this point in his life. He allows his desire to dictate his decisions. If he gets mad and he happens to have any foreign object in his hand, that will become a projectile that will be flying across the room shortly thereafter. If he gets happy, uh, even if his little sister is sleeping in the next room, he's liable to start shouting and singing wherever he is. His desire dictates his decisions. If he gets really sad, he might just melt down and flop down in the middle of the grocery store, start kicking, screaming, wailing, and crying like you know a demon-possessed child. We don't, well, whatever is going on, that's what's going on. Whatever he's desiring, that's dictating his decisions. The problem is all of us, to some extent, bring that trait into our adult life. We want our decisions to be dictated by our ethics, 
by our beliefs, by our relationship with God, right? By our morals. But a lot of times our decisions are dictated by our desires. And that's what happened this night with David. He sent a messenger out to find out who this woman was. And I actually love the messenger. If you read the, these two chapters in 2 Samuel, it's, it's a beautiful two passages, uh, beautiful chapters. Because the messenger comes back, and I love the way the messenger puts it. The messenger says, oh yeah, that woman that you were looking at, creeping on from the rooftop, right? Um, she is the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's most trusted, most loyal, fiercest warriors. Uriah was one of the greatest warriors in, in Israel. He was considered what they call the mighty men. He was among the elite troops, the elite fighting troops for David. And the messenger says, yeah, that's Uriah's wife, right? Well, now David knows where Uriah is because David's the one that sent him out to battle. So David sends some messengers to get uh, Uriah's wife and to bring him to the palace, uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been to Six Flags, but we used to have a, a pass to Six Flags. And the thing I love about Six Flags the most are the roller coasters. And the thing that I love about the roller coasters the most, there's one point at the roller coaster that I love the most. It's that moment where you're on the track and you can click, 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 click. You're right at the top and you get right to the top and it feels like you could actually stop and get out and walk down at this point, right? Right? But when you crest that hill, suddenly you start being pulled down that hill and it's past past the point of no return. You're gonna fly down that hill, right? That's the way it is with sin in David's life. He had reached a point where his desire was dictating his decision and now he is on a downward path that he is not able to stop. So he sends messengers and he he brings this woman to his house. He winds her, he dines her, He sleeps with her and he sends her home. And in David's mind, this is the end of the problem, of the situation, right? It's over. No harm, no foul. Nobody needs to know. I'm the king. I'm going to keep trucking. Everything's cool. But how many of you know when, when you do something in life that you ought not to do, when you commit a sin, it's like a weed that's growing up in your garden. You can ignore it. You can avoid it. You can sidestep it. You can even cut the top of it off, right? You could throw some mulch over it, but that baby's gonna keep on growing, right? Until it gets pulled out by the roots. And that's the way it is with sin in David's life. He thinks he can just avoid it and sidestep it and ignore this problem. But a few weeks later, he gets a little note in the mail and it says, hey, dear king, this is Uriah's wife. Just wanted you to know that I am carrying your child. This is not good news for David. But David has a moment right here to make a decision about what to do with his failure. How is he going to respond to this failure? Because his response to this failure is going to dictate the outcome of his life. He can either cover it and conceal it and hide it and bury it, or he can come clean. He can own it. He can repent He can tell Uriah, man, I blew it. I am, and confess it and try to set things right. He's got two choices, right? But David makes the choice to conceal. And the problem is that when we conceal our failures, we compound our failures. When we conceal them, we compound them. My boys have this little book at our house and it's called, There Was an Old Woman Who Swallowed the Fly. Has anybody ever heard of this book? It's a poem. 
It's a great book. It says, there wasn't a woman who swallowed the fly. I don't know why, perhaps she'll die. She swallowed a fly. That's the, that's the poem. It's a weird, morbid, crazy poem for children. <laughs> Kids love it. So she swallows this fly, and then the fly is agitating her in her belly, and she doesn't like the fly. So she swallows a spider to get the fly. Now there's a spider in her belly, wiggling and jiggling and all of this stuff, right? So she swallows a bird to get the spider. And then she swallows a cat to get the bird. Then she swallows a dog to get the cat. Then she swallows a goat to get the dog. Then she swallows a cow to get the goat. You see where this is going, right? The story ends, it says, there was an old woman who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. She swallowed a horse, right? (laughs) That's the way it works when we conceal our sin. It compounds. It multiplies. It just gets worse. The more you cover, the more you hide, the more you conceal, the more you bury, it just keeps growing. David has made the decision to conceal. He calls to the front lines of the battle and he says to his general, send Uriah back. I need to speak with Uriah. Uriah comes back to the palace. David has this ingenious plan to take Uriah to send him to his wife so that Uriah will sleep with his own wife and that when the baby's born nine months later, no one will be the wiser. So Uriah comes to the palace. David says, hey, how are things going at the battle? You guys are doing a great job. You're such a brave warrior. You're doing a fantastic job. Why don't you take the night off, go hang out, kick your feet off, relax with your wife and enjoy yourself. Uriah is a noble, honorable warrior. And Uriah says, my, my general is out sleeping in a field tonight. My brothers in arms are out sleeping in a field tonight. The Ark of the Covenant is out in a field tonight. He said, I am not going to take comfort in the pleasure and the comfort of my own home and in the arms of my wife while my brothers are out there fighting in the battle. F- fighting for you, by the way, David. And so David says, well... Let's get some wine going here. And he has the wine bearer come in and he gets Uriah drunk and he says, now now, now go on, Uriah. Come on, go. But Uriah won't do it. In fact, Uriah, the scripture says, he sleeps on the ground outside of the palace. He refuses. He says, I need to get back to the battle. And so David does the absolute unthinkable. He sits down and he pins a letter for his general Joab. And the letter says this, it says, Dear Joab, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from Uriah so that he will be struck down and that he will die. He gives the letter to Uriah. Uriah, a loyal, faithful soldier, doesn't open the letter, takes it to Joab, hands it to his general. Joab opens it, reads it, obeys the order, takes Uriah to the front, withdraws from him. Uriah is killed. The word comes back to David about what happened. And in David's mind, he has committed the perfect crime. He gets the girl, he gets the glory, he gets the child. And nobody is the wiser. He can just bury it. In fact, what he does is he brings Uriah's wife into the palace. He says, this soldier, this faithful, honorable soldier who has fallen under the sword, I am going to take care of his dear, poor widow. I'm going to bring her in and I will make her my wife. 
So he brings her into the palace and makes her his wife. And in his mind, he's pulled it off. Nobody needs to know. Uriah is dead. Joab doesn't know the whole story. The, the, the people in the palace don't know. And he's pulled it off, right? The problem is there's always one person who knows everything that we do, everything that we say, and everything that we think. And in the, the greatest understatement in all of scripture, the Bible says this, the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord was not happy with this series of decisions that David had made. And so God in his infinite mercy and in his infinite justice sends a prophet to call out David. Sometimes in our life, we need somebody in our life who can call us out. We need somebody in our life who will speak the truth and love to us. We need somebody in our life who will say, hey man, or hey sis, um, I just noticed this and I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna push in on this for a minute. We all need people in our life who can tell us the truth. And Nathan comes to David and he says, man, I know what you have done. I've seen what you have done. He tells an amazing story. He says there was a, a wealthy man who had horses and cattle and sheep and donkeys and, and a very rich man and he lives in your kingdom. And then there was a, another man who has only one little baby ewe lamb and who loved this baby ewe lamb and who fed this ewe lamb from his own plate and, 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 and gave the ewe, uh, the, the lamb uh, water from his own cup. And even he allowed the baby ewe lamb to sleep in his arms and, and, he, and he loved this lamb. And, and when somebody, a traveler came for a visit, he said the rich man, rather than sacrificing one of his own animals to, to feed the stranger, took the ewe lamb from the, the man who only had one. And David, it says, burned with rage, burned with anger at this grave injustice. And he says, who is this man? He should be, he should be killed. I'm going to have him killed. And Nathan turns to him and says, it's you. You are the man, David. You are the one who has taken what doesn't belong to you as your own. You are the one that has wrought havoc on this family. It's you. And David is crushed. The scripture says that uh, Nathan tells David, this is what he says to him. He says, David, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is where we meet David at the beginning of this story. We meet him in the worst possible moment in his life when he is literally on the ground in sackcloth and ashes weeping and wailing before God with his newborn son having died and him being the one who precipitated the series of events that led to this horrible tragedy. Now this easily could have been the end of David's life. This could be the end of the story. This could have been the end of his reign. But here is the good news. We serve a loving and compassionate God who doesn't end with our failure. We serve a loving and compassionate God who, when we are down, doesn't count us out. We serve a loving and compassionate God who doesn't see our failures as the final word. He says to us, if you, if you conceal, you're gonna compound, but if you will repent of your failures, you will be freed 
from your failures. You will be released from your failures. If you will repent of your failures, you will be be released from your failures. David comes to him, to Nathan, in this moment. And this is what he says to Nathan. He says, Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then he sits down and he writes some of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible, the very famous Psalm 51. This is what he writes. He says, have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out, he says, my transgressions. Wash away all of my iniquity and cleanse my sin from me. Then these famous words, he says, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me, he says, the joy of your salvation. When we repent of our failures, we are released from our failures. When we open up and let God into our lives and say, God, I'm coming clean. Whatever it is that I've thought, said, done, whatever the thing is in the past that I don't even want to bring up anymore. I'm not even thinking about it anymore because I've just buried it, right? But whether you know it or not, it's holding you back. And God is saying, look, I want to liberate you. I want you to be free. I don't want you to be bound up. I don't want you to be compounded with sin. I don't want you to be burdened. I don't want you to be lethargic and sluggish. I don't want to leave you on the mat. I don't want to leave you on the mat trying to get up. I want, to, I want to free you. I want to lift you up. I want to rebuild you. I want to restore you. I want to restructure you. I want to make you free. I want to take you with me. That's what he's saying to every single one of us in this passage. David finds this in his heart, this repentance in his heart. And he writes that psalm. And the scripture says that God forgave him and that David went to his wife and he comforted her and God gave them another son. And that son's name is Solomon. One of the greatest kings in all of Israel came out of this horribly tragic event. Solomon then, of course, went on to become the great, 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 great grandfather of our Lord Jesus. God can take that sin. He can take that brokenness. He can take that failure and he can redeem it and make something beautiful out of that pain, out of that suffering, out of that guilt and that shame that you carry with you. He can redeem it, he can restore it, and he can liberate you if you'll come clean to him, if you'll come before him. Now here's how how it looks, here's how it looks. The first, I can't, I gotta give you some points. I'm just, I gotta have some points in this sermon. If we don't have points, then I haven't preached, all right? So here's my points. First, recognize recognize the failure. This is the first thing. Sometimes we just, we just don't look at it. We just avoid it. We just don't recognize it. We consciously, we're willfully ignorant of our own failures, right? First thing, Jesus said, you will look at the, the splinter in somebody else's eye, but man, you will not even see the beam in your own. He said, I want you to recognize when you have failed, right? The second thing is to reveal it, right? This means confess. This means, this means let somebody know. Get into a life group. Get around some other brothers or sisters in Christ that you can open up with. Get, you know, come to to a pastor or one of our leaders. Or if you want to go to a counselor, we connect you with a counselor. But 
but reveal the thing, whatever it is, reveal it, open up about it. One of my great pastor friends says the power of sin is in the secret. The, 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 the secret of the sin is what maintains power over you. When you open up and confess it and, and, and reveal it, it liberates you. It frees you. Number three is renounce it. That means turn away from it, right? Recognize it, reveal it, renounce it, turn away. Say, look, I'm, there it is. I've, I've, I see what it is and I'm moving away from it. I'm, I'm gonna go a different direction. David had that option. Finally, he took it. If he had taken it a lot earlier, it would have been a lot better. So renounce it, turn away from it, right? And then the fourth one is repeat, repeat the process, repeat the cycle because failure is inevitable, right? But it doesn't have to define you. Your response to your failure is what matters. Your response to your failure is what makes all the difference. You are either defined or you are refined by your failures, right? Depending on how you respond to them. March 8, 1971, Muhammad Ali gets up off the canvas, goes back to the gym, starts training again. Working, training, dieting, running, getting it, trying to get it, trying to get it back together. Three years later, back at Madison Square Garden, same arena, same ring, same competitor, meets Joe Frazier again. This time, Ali prevails, unanimous decision against Joe Frazier. And just because there were some doubts around that fight, came back a year later and TKO'd him in the 14th round. So if you're an Ali fan, this is some good stats for you. You can just put that in your pocket. Uh, The thing is that we don't have to be defined by our failure. It doesn't have to be the end of the line for us. We can be refined by our failures if we'll bring them before the Lord. I pray that our church is a place where people come with burdens, with sin, with guilt and shame, and they are embraced and they are loved and they are lifted up. They are empowered. They are strengthened. They are inspired because it's not their failure that defines them. It's not their failure that defines them. It's the love of God. It's the image of God that defines who they are. I pray that we become a place where no matter where you come from, no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what you're doing right now, you can come and experience the grace and the mercy and the love of God. I pray that we become a place that proclaims throughout the world that just because you are down doesn't mean you are out. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you right now for this word of inspiration and encouragement. We praise you, Lord, for not hiding all of the rough edges of the men and women in the scripture, but revealing them to us, Lord, so that we can relate to them, so that we can know that you are with us even in our failures, even in our trials, even in our struggles. Lord, I pray for every single person in this auditorium today. I pray that you would speak life into their heart, that you would give courage to them, that you would give strength to them, Lord, that they would have the courage to come before you, Lord, and say, God, I want to I recognize and reveal and renounce my failures. I want to I come before you with a repentant heart. We know that you hate sin, but you love a repentant heart. I pray that every single one of us, Lord, whatever we're experiencing in our life, 
whatever we've been through, whatever we've done, whatever's been done to us. God, I pray that we would bring it before you today and we would just turn it over to you and that we would not be defined by our failures, Lord, but we would be refined by the potter's hands. We know you want to redeem us and restore us and set us on the path to fulfill the mission that you've called us to accomplish. And God, I pray for every single person in this room today that we would be able to step forward in that with courage, strength, and confidence in you. Father, to you be all the honor and to you be all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.